0: If you were to rank all the contentious passages in the Scriptures, all the contentious chapters in the Bible, Matthew 24 would definitely make the top five. Might contend for the number one spot with some passages in Revelation and some other ones, but it's up there with the most difficult topics, the difficult passages to read and interpret This chapter is particularly difficult because of several things. For one, the subject matter pertains to a time of judgment that Jesus is talking about. And so when it pertains to a time of judgment, that's usually Bible speak for this has some apocalyptic tones to it. And anytime time there's a chapter or a part of the Bible that's got some apocalyptic language, it means that it's going to be a challenge to understand. In this passage, Jesus is, is giving insight to his disciples about some events that are going to take place, so in, in that sense, it's also prophetic. So like Revelation, there's some future telling of events that are taking place, and so uh, Matthew 24 has, kind of like Revelation, some intrigue to it, a bit of maybe mystery to it, a bit of difficulty in wrapping your mind around some of the language that Jesus is using, and all of that. And for a long time, and for at least over the past 150 or so years, the passage has been interpreted primarily as events that are to take place still in our future. But that's not what makes it really difficult to preach. One time I, I was teaching through the book of Revelation, and it took three years, as you can imagine, right? That's not uncommon for me, I'm sure. It took three years. We went almost verse by verse. This is mostly people my age. We went verse by verse, and, and when I began, right before I began the study, I asked the people that were listening, some 40 or so adults about my age, how many of them within the last so many years had read through cover to cover the book of Revelation? And about 75% of the people in the congregation or in that little crowd raised their hand. And so then I asked, how many of you have ever studied the book of Revelation verse by verse? I mean, had somebody guide you through it, walk you through it, verse by verse, one person in the class raised their hand. Out of 40 people my age, one person raised their hand. I asked them how many of them had opinion on Revelation. How many of you have an opinion on how it unfolds? None of them raised their hand. They recognized we haven't read it, and we haven't studied it verse by verse. And so I said, Let me lay out a typical timeline for how Revelation is typically taught, and let me ask you if you agree with this timeline, and if you expect that to be taught here on Sunday morning. And so I laid out a very typical timeline that they've heard and read in books and things like that. How many of you, I asked, read Revelation and are expecting to study Revelation with this timeline in mind? 100% of everybody raised their hand. This is the reason why these passages are difficult to preach, like Revelation and Matthew 24 and places like that. Because most people in the crowd have an opinion, and most of them have never read it or studied it. Most all of them have an opinion on how it should go and how it should be taught, but typically very few have studied the passage themselves. People have opinions but most of them don't actually have facts because they haven't studied it. And as the old adage goes, when you can't pound the facts, pound the table, right? So what ends up happening is that people who have these very strong opinions on how the end times are going to unfold, they mistakenly assume that their opinions are the only way the only allowable opinion for the way the end times can unfold. See, the problem in all of that is that throughout church history that has never been the case. It has never been universally agreed upon as to how the end times will unfold. That may shock some of you. That in the teaching of Revelation. As far back as the second century, the apostles just died. Their disciples are now leading the church. It still isn't agreed upon as to what the book of Revelation is pointing to. Matthew 24, similar as well. There are a few things that have been completely agreed upon across the entire church, all those that are considered Christians. There are a few things when it comes to the end times. First is that Jesus is going to return bodily at the end of human history. That has been universally agreed upon since the apostles. Jesus is going to return bodily. I mean, literally going to come out of the sky bodily. He's going to return. Second, that he is going to judge the world, and the wicked will be thrown into hell. Universally agreed upon. Third, he is going to establish his kingdom on a new earth with his people who have been resurrected and themselves given new bodies. And there are a couple other things that are connected to that, but that's mostly it, like the bodily resurrection of the Lord, right? That's not necessarily end times, but in order to return bodily, he has to be resurrected bodily. Those have had complete unity amongst believers in Christ throughout history. So all that is to say, some words of warning for the next couple of weeks as we go through Matthew 24. As you can imagine, I'm a little bit nervous to preach through Matthew 24. This Sunday and the next two Sundays, it's going to take us to get all the way through this chapter. And the first thing I want to warn you about is you may not agree with everything that I say in the next this week in the next two weeks and that's okay you can write that down if you're taking notes if you're one that likes to take notes just write that down all right and just trans- transfer it to the next copy of notes that you get next week and the one after that you don't have to agree with everything I say over the next three weeks that's okay in order to be a member of our church you and I need to agree on those three things that I listed and some other things too that we usually go over in pastoral interviews when you talk about wanting to join the church. But how the end times shapes up the timeline of events, we don't have to agree on. Second thing I would urge you is that I would urge you to ground what you think, whether you agree with me or not, within the text of Scripture. Scripture. Rather than what you've heard this or that preacher preach or this or that book has been written about, I would rather you ground what you think about Matthew 24 or Revelation for that matter in the scriptures themselves. Now, authors and preachers, they help us to understand the text. I've been helped in innumerable ways growing up, all throughout my life by authors and preachers. Uh, They've helped me to understand the Bible but we have Bibles in front of us. We have the text of Scripture in our lap, and we are required and we need to learn to read it for ourselves as well. So, if you disagree with me, again, that's fine. Just ground it in the Scriptures. So I don't want to hear but I heard this preacher say, but I heard that preacher say, but I read this book one time that said, we can talk about all kinds of disagreements but let's ground it in the Scripture. Now, with all of that being said, all of that foundation work being laid, this week will be the least inflammatory of the three weeks, okay? So just kind of tuck all this away in your mind for next week and the week after, all right? That's where it's really going to come into play, and you better believe I'm going to remind you of all these things when we get there next week and the week after. So with that in mind, let's read our text this morning in Matthew 24, 1 to 14. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be? and kingdom against kingdom and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places all these are but the beginning of the birth pains then they will deliver you up to the tri- to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray and because lawlessness will be increased the love of many will grow cold The one who endures to the end will be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Let's pray. Father, perhaps more than any other Sunday, I I pray for unity over this text that we've read and that we're now going to discuss I don't pray for uniformity. I wouldn't wish that on anyone. But I do pray for unity. That in spite of differences of opinion that may exist, as we read this, as we study it, as we talk about it, in the weeks to come, that You would bring unity where we can acknowledge that as brothers and sisters in Christ, what unifies us is the blood that He shed on the cross in His resurrection. What unifies us is the faith, faith once for all delivered to the saints that has been passed down from generation to generation and has reached us. I pray that you would do that in and through this text. Allow us to understand it, open our hearts and minds, that we may not only intellectually understand it, but it may reach down into the deepest crevices of our heart, where sin remains, and you would use this passage and others like it to purge all of that from us. In Jesus' name, amen. Our first objective in this passage is to unpack the disciples' question, to understand the disciples' question questions that they ask to Jesus. Now remember last week, Jesus was standing in the temple there with the religious authorities, and his disciples were gathered around, and he tells to the religious authorities that their house would be left to them desolate. And we and I said back then, the house that he's talking about there is the temple that he's standing in. The house is going to be left to them desolate. And the illustration that I use to help help understand the language that he's using there goes all the way back even into Ezekiel chapter 10, where Ezekiel is in uh, exile in Babylon, and he's sitting on the river, and on his 30th birthday no less. And here comes a vision from the Lord. And he sees in this vision the glory of God leaving the temple, making the temple desolate of the glory of God because of the pagan worship that's going on there. Well, in our text here, and we took a glimpse at it last week, but in our text here we see in verse 1, what do we see? Jesus is leaving the temple. Here's the bodily manifestation of the glory of God packing up and leaving the temple. Their house is literally left to them desolate. The glory of God is gone, and they won't see it again unless they repent, he tells them. And then in verse 3, what does Jesus do? Verse 3 of our passage, what does he do? He sits down on the Mount of Olives. Now, this happens to also coincide with what happens in Ezekiel. As you read through Ezekiel 10, the glory of the Lord leaves the temple, and then if you flip to the next page, right there in Ezekiel chapter 11, we see where the glory of the Lord ends up. In verse 23, says, And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. That's Ezekiel eleven twenty three. 23. So on the way out of the temple, the glory of the Lord parks itself on... But you'll never guess what mountain is east of the temple. Well, that would be the Mount of Olives. So where is Jesus giving this what has become known as the Olivet Discourse? The fancy term for it. He packs up from the temple and he leaves and he sets down on the Mount of Olives. Now his disciples are obviously very concerned with what he's just said. He's, they're concerned with what he said to the, the Pharisees with the whole language of destroying the temple and leaving the temple desolate. They're very concerned about that, and so they want to ask him a couple of questions. And you'll notice that Jesus doubles down on his answers. They come out and they say, well, look at these. Look at the stones here. Look at this giant temple. I mean, look at the temple complex. This thing is huge. What do you mean desolate? He says in verse 2, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Destroyed, in other words. Now, just to give you a picture of what the disciples are thinking here. We have still some foundation stones of Herod's temple. That would be the temple that Jesus is walking out of. Some foundation stones still stand there. Rome walked in and desecrated the whole thing. Just Destroyed it in 70 AD. But there's still some foundation stones that are left there. Let me give you an idea of the size. The biggest one is 44 feet long, 15 feet high, 15 feet, sorry, deep, and 11 and a half feet high. 44, 15, 11 and a half. The estimate of the weight of that stone is somewhere near 600 tons. Taller than a man, these foundation stones are. They walk out and the, the bottom stone is over their head. So it's with good reason that the disciples are looking around and raising their eyebrows. What exactly do you mean by desolate? Look how monstrous this structure is. But Jesus doubles down. I mean utterly destroyed. So once they get across the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives, the disciples naturally want him to clarify some of this information, as you probably would and I probably would. What, what, what do you mean by all of this? Now, I want you to see their question in verse 3. It's really a two-part question. And we're going to deal mostly with the first part of the question for the next two weeks, and then the third week we're going to deal with the second part of the question. Look at their question in verse 3. When will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? The these things, in their question at the very beginning, when will these things be, in the context of this chapter, has to be the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. That is what they're asking about, because that is what he has just said in this passage. The sign of His coming at the end of the age, the second part of their question, refers to His physical return, which will be addressed, but we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. Now, the reason that we know this is the order that He's answering those, or that it's a two-part question, the reason we know that it's a two-part question is, first, because it's patently obvious that when they say these things, they are primarily concerned with the destruction of the temple. What are these things but the things that he has just said, which is the destruction of the temple, which is different than it is his coming and of the end of the age, which will take place in verse 36 and follow. Now you're going to see a marked change between those two passages, one that ends in verse 35 and then, verse 36 and all the way from 4 to 35 he's going to tell them warnings these are the signs to look for this is what all is going to happen this is what's going to take place and when on this happens that's when you know for sure it's taking place so run but then in 36 he changes to say but that day and that hour no one knows he switches from saying those days to that day a specific day upon his return So first is that it's patently obvious that they say these things and then they refer to His coming. But then second, He handles the questions differently. You see that marked change at verse 36. So let me be abundantly clear as to the way I think this is supposed to be read. Matthew, Jesus, the Holy Spirit intends us to read this passage. I think Jesus from verses 4 to 35 he is answering the question about the destruction of the temple from verses 4 to 35 he's answering questions of the, que- the main question about the destruction of the temple then from verse 36 on to the very end and even into chapter 25 he is talking about his physical return at the end of human history which is still in our future so the first part of this passage 4 to 35 is in our past It's already happened. 70 A.D., Rome marches in, destroys the temple, and I think that is the question that he's answering. That's in the disciples' future, but in our past. Then verse 36, that is in both ours and the disciples' future, at that moment. Now, we're only going to cover through verse 14, which stops just short of one of the more interesting verses in the whole passage, one of the more controversial verses. Verses in the whole passage. We're going to look at that next week. But we are going to look throughout the chapter just to kind of see how some of this breaks down. Now, it may create a ton of questions in your mind. Abomination of desolation, as an example, happens in verse 15. What is that all about? We'll get to it next week. But stick with me through the end of this. And if you do disagree, wait till the end to disagree with me. Now, why do I think he's talking about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD? Now, first, in order to answer that question, We have to get to the second part where we start to unpack Jesus' answer in 4 to 14. The first part of his answer, anyway, in 4 to 14. So there are several indicators within this passage that we don't need to ignore because they help us to establish a timeline. Now remember, the disciples, that's what they really want. They want a timeline. Tell us how all this stuff is going to shake out because what you just said about the biggest stones I've ever seen in all my life what you said about those being un- overturned and being turned into rubble makes me a little nervous. So can you just lay out a timeline? And so Jesus is really going to do some of that. He's going to lay out for them some, some real answers. And all the answers that he gives up to verse 35 is all answers about how we know these things will be. When, will these, when these things will be. So first I want you to notice what he does right at the outset. They ask him the question. And then right at the outset, what does he do in verse 4? He says, see that no one leads you astray. So before I even lay out the timeline, before I get to all of those bits and pieces that you want to know, let me first say, do not be led astray. Not only that, but if you look at the word astray, In your, if you have the ESV especially, the word astray is stated three times in our passage alone, 4 to 14. And it's stated another time in our passage for next week. So, what is he concerned with in this passage? He's concerned that the disciples would be led astray. Very plainly, that's obviously what he's concerned with because he wants their faith to endure. To the end, he's concerned that the disciples continuing in the faith that they currently possess. So what is he specifically worried about? That they wouldn't be led astray. What does he tell them in verse 5? That there will be people coming claiming to be the Messiah. One, One way they can be led astray. In the absence of Jesus is that they would see people coming, proclaiming themselves to be Christ, and that they would flee out into the wilderness to look after those people, or to say, Jesus has officially returned, and we just didn't know it. He didn't come to us. Let's go out to see Him. Now, why is this important? Well, because of all the things that are coming next. He says in the next verses, he speaks of wars and rumors of wars of nations rising against nations, of famines and earthquakes. In other words, there's going to be plenty of opportunity. There's going to be lots of chaos for people who preach salvation to come to you and say, Come to me for rescue. Come to me for salvation. You're going to hear of all these wars, you're going to see famines happening, you're going to have all of this calamity, and at the same time, people are going to come preaching to you salvation, you can find your salvation here, don't worry, I will protect you. Remember what the disciples think about the Messiah? What they have thought about the Messiah? That he's coming to lead a political revolution, that he's at this time going to overthrow Rome and establish his kingdom on the earth? They still think that in Acts. And in spite of him telling them no, they're still thinking that. And so he issues a warning lest all the calamity lead you to seek salvation in some other name. The government? Hello? We still do that today. Josephus, who the, a name some of you may recognize and some of you may not recognize. Josephus was a man that lived in the first century, and he was Jewish, he was not Christian, but he was a historian. So he wrote a ton of stuff, and information that we got from him, from his annals that have persevered the test of time, are invaluable. And many of them support what's in the New Testament. Sometimes he doesn't write about things that are in the New Testament, but the things that he does comment support exactly what the authors are saying in the New Testament, neither here nor there. He's a first century historian, historian, and he affirms all of these calamities that Jesus is talking about take place. Now, he doesn't refer to Jesus prophesying about these calamities. He's just talking about the calamities that took place in between the years, roughly 14, and all the way up to the destruction of the temple. He tells us that during the reign of Nero, which is about in the 60s, deceivers and false prophets were arrested on a daily basis. He tells us the same period from Jesus' ministry up to the destruction of the temple witnessed countless military uh, altercations, including an uprising in Caesarea that took 20,000 Jewish lives. At Scythopolis, 13,000 Jews were killed. In Alexandria, 50,000. 10,000 in Damascus. There were countless more military battles and four famines during this time. This is 40 years. Four famines take place during this time, including one that's talked about in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, that Paul's raising money for. And on top of that, earthquakes of plenty, one in which leveled many cities, including Laodicea, which you may recognize from the book of Revelation. That earthquake that tore down their city completely is actually very important when you look into the book of Revelation and the letter that's addressed to them. All of these things take place in between this time, and Jesus is warning the disciples no, 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 the end is not yet. These are just the beginnings of the birth pains. This is just a warning. Lest you look at the death of the Jews in wherever, in Caesarea, in Scythopolis, in Alexandria, in Damascus. Lest you look at all their deaths and think, well, this is it. This is how it's all going to come to an end. All these military campaigns are going to come into the land and they're going to destroy us. No, 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 no. No, no, no. That's, the only, that's only the beginning. Believe me, he says, you will know when the end is going to take place. Just to reiterate the timeline that we're talking about here, Jesus is going to recap for us again next week in next week's passage. But, and I know we'll read some of that next week, but I just want you to see how he reiterates what he's talking about to them in the next passage. Look in verse 24, 20, sorry, 25 to 26. Matthew 24, 25 to 26. So just look down in your Bible there, 25. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, Remember, you're looking for false Christ. If they say to you, look, he is, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner room, do not believe it. So he's telling them, do not be deceived. Do not be taken away. Then look again in verse 34. This to me is the linchpin for me of why he's talking about what he's talking about. Verse 34, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things Take play. Now, you may ask, well, I thought all of this was supposed to be in our future. He's talking about the end times, talking about Antichrist and all those kinds of things. When all of that happens, surely that's what he's talking about here, right? That's what I've always been taught. But what does it mean, this generation here? Is Jesus being metaphorical? What does it say in the Greek? Are you ready for this? It says, this is generation okay but what does it mean maybe there's some meaning in the Greek that I'm missing out on what does he mean this generation I'm glad you're sitting down let me explain it to you he means this generation not our generation he means the generation that he is talking to at that moment the generation of the disciples the generation of the Pharisees. The destruction of the temple is going to happen in about 40 years from Jesus' ministry, from when he's telling his disciples this. Most of the disciples are going to be alive and are going to watch it happen, or at least hear about it happening. This interpretation, this timeline that he's given to us, actually fits incredibly well with what he said just a few passages before this in Matthew 23, verse 34 to 36. So go up in your Bibles to verse 34 to 36 of the previous chapter. 23, 34 to 36. He says, therefore, I send you prophets. He's talking to the Pharisees now in the temple. Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous bloodshed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. That's what he tells the scribes and Pharisees. They're in the temple. Is he being metaphorical? Is he talking about this generation, meaning some generation in even our future? No. He's talking about the generation he's talking to. They are going to be judged. Why? Because, as I said a couple of weeks ago, they took part, or they are taking part, in the faith of their forefathers who killed the prophets and who stoned and killed the righteous men. That God sent to them. They killed them. The Pharisees are pretending like they aren't part of that heritage. And Jesus is saying, no, you are. And here's how, the, how they're going to know. I'm going to send to you. That's what he says in 34. I'm going to send to you the prophets and the scribes. These are his disciples. These are people trained in the message of the gospel of the kingdom of Christ. They're going to come preaching the good news of the gospel. And what are they going to do? They're going to flog them. They're going to crucify them, namely Jesus. They're going to send them out of the synagogues. They're going to persecute them from town to town. Think Paul in Acts. They're going to do all of this. And that is proof that they are taking part with their forefathers. And for that, all the judgment that was due to Israel from Abel's murder... By Cain, all the way back in Genesis chapter 4, all the way up through the end of the Old Testament, through the murder of Zechariah, all of that judgment is going to come right upon the Pharisees in this generation. They're going to reap it all. This is partly what he's referring to in our passage starting in verse 9. You see that he says in 24 9, he says, Then they will deliver you. This is his warning to the disciples. They're going to deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. They're going to go all over the place and they're going to be persecuted everywhere they go. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. At which point, judgment will come upon this generation to which Jesus is issuing the warning. Then, he says in verse 14, the end will come. To which end is he referring Is he talking about the end when he returns, the apocalypse and all of that that we've read about in Revelation? No, not the end of the world, but the end of the Jewish kingdom that is epitomized by that temple. This is what's going to happen when it comes to an end. Don't worry about the wars and the rumors of wars and the famines and all those kind of things. Those are the birth pains. They have to take place. But it's not until they start really persecuting the church and driving them out of the synagogues that then the end will come can't be after the collapse of the temple because the Jewish synagogue system in the land started to collapse also after the temple is destroyed. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the destruction of the temple that he's been talking about for nearly four chapters already. Wait a minute. What about verse 14? Look at verse 14 here. He says, "...and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world." as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. We're still working on preaching the gospel throughout the whole world right now. Well, in 70 A.D., the whole world didn't even exist. The whole world, we know it now. Most demographers, which I'm not one, by the way, most demographers, which are people that study population, they estimate that back in 70 A.D., somewhere around 250 million people roamed the earth. Now we're at like what, 7 to 8 billion, working on 8 billion. Back then, an estimate of 250 million. Don't ask me how they get to that stat, but across the board, it's somewhere around there, give or take 50 million people or so. Now, if that's the case, well, there's not enough people to fill the whole world, so surely we're still working on the proclamation of the gospel to the very end. And he's talking about the end of all time, right? The gospel is going to be proclaimed to the end of the world, and then finally the end will come. But there's two big problems with that logic. One is that it ignores the context that I've shown you, that just completely rips it, kicking and screaming out of context in the Scripture, and that we'll look at for the next two weeks. But second, he actually doesn't use the phrase, every country on earth, And that's not even the words that he would use to say that if he had intended to say that. I think that's the wrong way to think about what he means here. The phrase that he uses, whole world, has the meaning of the inhabited world and even in some cases means strictly the Roman Empire. He says that it will make it to all nations, meaning all the inhabited world, all the known world at the time, it will make it Beyond those bounds. In other words, it's going to break the boundaries of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and it's going to make it to the ends of the earth. In Acts, just before Jesus leaves, he gives to the disciples a warning or a, a, more like a commission. And he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Well, he says it right there. He lays out a timeline or a, a outline for how the book of Acts is going to unfold. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And lo and behold, what we find in the book of Acts is that's exactly how the timeline plays out. But a lot of people get to the end of the book of Acts, and you see there at the very end, Paul makes it to Rome. He's in prison, but he makes it to Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire. And it's it's a common question when you get to the book of Acts, people go, I I thought Jesus said that he would make it to the end of the earth. He just made it to Rome, which is not really considering the end of the earth that far from Jerusalem. How can we say that's the end of the earth? But the point is, in Acts, that is the end of the earth. I want you to think about this for just a second. So first, a self-proclaimed Messiah steps into what we know as the Holy Land, into the land of Canaan, around Jerusalem and Judea and Galilee, and he starts doing ministry there. And first, people react kind of lukewarm to him, and then eventually people see his signs and his wonders, and they, they think, you know, this guy might be actually the Messiah. And they champion him as such. But really, in the Holy Lands, they're not even the people that are in power at this moment. Rome is. They're not even the people that are in power under the people in power. That's the Sanhedrin. They're impoverished, poor people. This is a tempest in a teapot, what's happening in Galilee. So then he walks into Jerusalem and the most powerful people in the religious society there kill him. But then he raises from the dead. Okay, that's interesting. That's a game changer, you might say. All right? Somebody raises from the dead, that raises some eyebrows. So then they start preaching and proclaiming, and then all of a sudden, this tempest in a teapot from Galilee, the smallest of the mustard seeds in Nowheresville, Israel, now has all of a sudden spread to the most powerful people in Rome to Greece, to Macedonia. One of the church fathers who writes in the first century, his name is Clement, he writes that under the ministry of Paul, before his death, he says this, that Paul reached the farthest limits of the West. Then he describes the teaching of Paul. He says he taught righteousness to the whole world. Many think that Paul got out of prison in Rome and then eventually was in, went to Spain and was eventually imprisoned and came back. So the meaning by Jesus here is obvious. Before the temple is destroyed, the gospel will have penetrated the farthest reaches of pagan society. You think, disciples, that this is a tempest in a teapot now? Just wait. By the time that temple is destroyed, this message of the gospel will not just be on the eleven Here. 12 including Judas, but will reach the furthest reaches of pagan society and will be preached maybe even in in Nero's house before it's all said and done. And then the end will come. The end of the Jewish age will come in the destruction of the temple. But here's the reason why this is important. We dig through all of that, lay out all that, take copious notes, Turn over every comma and period and ask every question and look at every word. Why? Why do we dig and scrape through all those details to understand this passage? Well, because I think the reason that we do that demonstrates not only what this passage is actually saying, what Jesus is saying to His disciples here, but at the same time, it explains why it's tragic that the church Many churches have used chapters like this in the book of Revelation to fight each other for so long. Jesus' whole point of telling his disciples all of this about the temple is to warn them in verses 12 and 13. That is the pinnacle of this passage is verses 12 and 13. Where he says this, Because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now you might think to yourself, well, if this is really just about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, that's already passed. Why do I care about that? Why is that preserved in Matthew's gospel to tell me anything now? Why does this actually matter to me? Because the love of many growing cold. Look at the text. The love of many growing cold is a result of what? The increase of lawlessness. And guess what? That lawlessness didn't stop at the destruction of the temple. No, it kept going. And getting worse. He's telling the disciples about a particular time that they need to be concerned about and they need to look for. But what Jesus is saying here. It may have been applicable to those disciples that they need to understand, but His warning extends throughout the church age to you and to me. And don't take my word for it. Take Jesus' words for it in Revelation chapter 2 in His words to the church at Ephesus. Starting in verse 2, He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. But I have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not uh, but but who have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false false i know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary hey that's a good church you might want to join that church until verse 4 though this is interesting but i have this against you you have abandoned the love you had at first Remember, therefore, where you have fallen, and repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, listen to this, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, the one who endures to the end, I will grant from the tree of life, will be saved. So that that warning to the church at Ephesus has a familiar ring to it, doesn't it? But it should utterly terrify us. You know why? Because he says this to the church at Ephesus. But look at what he underlines they're doing right. They have all their doctrine in the right place. They have all their theology in a nice neat row, all their theological ducks in order. They hate some of the false gospel works that Jesus despises. Those are the Nicolaitans he mentions there. They test what is preached by everyone, and because they've tested what is preached by everyone, they've actually sniffed out some of those who call themselves to be apostles but are preaching a false gospel. They've sniffed it out, and they've gotten rid of them. They don't want those people in their church. That's great. They have all their theology in line, which Jesus commends them for. He doesn't say that's unimportant. He says it's very important. And you have all those things in line. Yet, even with all of that, their actual love for Jesus, for the Lord, has grown cold. Christian, it is possible for you to hate the works of the prosperity gospel preachers, It is possible for you to hate the works of the LGBT preachers, the Mormon and Jehovah's Witness preachers, who muddy or even undermine completely the actual message of the gospel. It is possible for you to have your end times opinion all neatly squared up, accounting for every verse in the Bible. It is possible for you to be staunchly in your Calvinist camp or your Arminian camp, it is possible for you to be for or against elders in the church and to know the reasons why. It is possible for you to be all those things and your love for the Lord grow completely cold. Here's how you know if your staunchness over all of those things has led you to fight with your brothers and sisters and maybe even divide them, then your love has grown cold. I don't care what you testify to. I don't care how often you read your Bible in your house. If all of those opinions that you have have led you to to not only disagree but to fight with and even divide against your brothers and sisters in Christ, your love has grown cold. And your reading of the Bible is in vain. How do you know that? Because he tells you that in verse 10. Many will fall away and betray one another. What will it look like? They will hate one another. That's what it looks like. Remember he tells his disciples, you, they will know you are my disciples by your Love you have for one another. He says, here, no, that's not what it looks like. And you go, well, I don't hate them. You just disagree with them to the point where you won't talk to them anymore? Or do you think that they're not a Christian? Or they're preaching a false gospel? That's hate, how the Bible defines it. In fact, Jesus pushes it even further and says that's murder against your brother. If your attendance in church is spotty at best, your love is grown or is growing cold. Online church is awful. I'll go ahead and tell you that right now, and I love you, those that are watching, but it's awful. You know how it started. We kind of start and we're like, hey, this is new. This is interesting. Okay, I'm watching church online. I like this. This is okay. The next week, some of the novelty starts to wear off, and week after week, the novelty wears off completely. Do you know how many we had watching the first live stream? 360. Do you know how many we had watching eight weeks later? 60. Novelty wore off. And let's be honest, there are times where you go, look, how am not going to miss me if I'm not there. And I can catch it later. And I can go out and work in my yard when it's not hot. And then I can come in and worship when it is hot. So, win-win, right? And then after a while, you're like, well, I mean, what's wrong if I catch it on Monday? And then maybe a Sunday goes by, and you're like, I forgot to even tune in last week. And so you're there this week. Church without you is miserable. I'll tell you that much right now. Speaking on behalf of the COVID-6, that were here doing it when everything was shut down, what our band name was. I don't know if you knew that. was <laughs> uh, a wave sweeping across the nations. You know, speaking on behalf of them, it was terrible. It was awful. And you say from home, well, what's the matter? I can see the back of people's heads. Yeah, but they can't see you. It's terrible without you. It is. You actually matter. You don't need somebody to come up and tell you you matter. You matter. I'll tell you right now, all of you, you matter. And being here actually matters. Edifying one another matters. You can't do that from a distance. Online church is not church. I'm thankful we had it, but it's not church. It, it almost encouraged the love of many to grow cold. If the regular spiritual disciplines of Bible reading and prayer have disappeared from your life, your love is growing cold. If Sunday morning is the only time that you come before the Lord and confess your sins to Him, your love has grown or is growing cold and the frostbite is starting to set in. But I don't sit in judgment of your love growing cold. I am all too familiar with it, believe me, in my own life. It will be the struggle of nearly every believer, but the good news of the Gospel is this, that God loved us so much that He sent His own Son to die in our place. And what did He do? Through the blood of Christ, but He reconciled us to Himself. That's how much He loved us. He brought us near into his family. So for us who believe in Christ, we can look forward to life eternal, both with each other and with him physically when he returns. So if you have been reconciled to God through Christ, if the Spirit of God is within you, Christian, he does not call you enemy, he calls you friend. Now, do you know what that means for you? That means that your past... Which was actually in all in the future when Christ died. If we can just play with the timeline for just a second. Your past has been thrown as far as the east is from the west. All of it is gone, even the things that are to you in your future. so that he could reconcile you to himself, so that he could welcome you to his table. So what that means is that in, if it has grown cold, the frostbite is setting in, the embers in the pit may appear to have gone out, but they can always be revived. Always. So what happens when you revive them? Well, what does it look like? The same as it looks for the church in Ephesus. Repent, therefore, and do the works that you did at first. The love of God will come back to you if you are in Christ. Repent of those sins. Don't hold them back. Confess them to the Lord. No, we don't skirt over them. No, we don't cover them over with dirt or sweep them under the rug. No, no, no. We confess them. We own them. Those are yours. They are sins. And we own anything that's in our future. They are our sins. But we move past them knowing that they don't stop us from sitting at the table with the Lord and feasting from all that He has for you. They're gone in Christ. So don't allow these trials that are around, the terribleness, the hostility that is ever increasing and has been since Jesus left. Don't let all the chaos pour water on the campfire. Instead, let us always be people of the book. People who search the Scriptures vigorously. Who study our theology, yes, who know it to like the back of our hand. We formulate our own thoughts and our own opinions, especially where there is liberty to do so, because we're studying the Word, and we discuss with our brothers and sisters in love for the purpose of sharpening one another and building one another up. But people of the book who understand that our purpose in doing all of that is not strictly academic. That's not what we're trying to do, is just tickle our brains. But to stoke the fires of love and devotion to God all the way to the end of this life. Why? Because the one who endures to the end will be saved. Our goal as a group is to make it to the end. So that when I'm on my deathbed or when you're on your deathbed, we are still singing praise to the Lord. That's the point. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for all that we've studied, all that we've talked about. I know it's deep and sometimes it's hard not to get lost in the weeds of arguments that have gone on in the churches in the past and all of that and and all the theology and the twists and the turns of the passage. I just pray that by your Spirit's help you will pull us all together. Whether we agree or disagree on various nuances and interpretations in the text that we will realize That where there is gospel agreement, there is real agreement indeed. And that gospel agreement forms the foundation for our lives together as Christians. That it's not merely a confession, but it's an actual thing that took place A reality that we're singing about, that we're praying about, that we're reading and preaching about, a reality that actually took place 2,000 years ago where you reconciled us to yourself through the blood of Christ, and that we are different because of that. Pray that that would become a tangible reality to this body. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand and let's sing together.